This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord for guidance as we study his word. Father, we're thankful for the way you have revealed yourself to us. And you have revealed yourself to us not in one act of special revelation, not in the downloading of one particular book, but through the process of using human beings under your superintendence, under your guidance, under your control, so that what they wrote was guaranteed to be free from error and to accurately reflect uh, what you intended to communicate to us that by the end of the process of the giving of special revelation, otherwise known as the closing of the canon of Scripture, that we might have a complete and sufficient guide to every issue in life, a framework of thought for everything in life where we can know how you think and how you would have us to think and therefore how you would have us to live. And as we study through the book of Proverbs and we study uh, wisdom, your wisdom, the divine wisdom for all ages, that as we live according to that, we see a work of, uh, of skill, a work of beauty develop in our lives through God the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might be uh, willing to take up the challenge to live according to your word. And Father, we pray that you might encourage us, strengthen us, and inform us as we study your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at through the eyes of Scripture, we come to learn something that is often denigrated by the world around us, and that is that there are basically two ways of looking at life. Some would say that's reductionistic, but that's not. There's God's way and there's everybody else's way. And the only way that counts is God's way. Everybody else's way may manifest itself in many different some even contradictory forms of thought. You have forms of thought based on rationalism, that is the idea that human reason is the starting point and end point for everything that we know to be true. You can have empiricism, which is a view that everything that we know to be true derives from uh, observance through our senses, through hearing what we see, what we taste, what we touch, um, all of these various uh, aspects. You have mysticism, which puts the ultimate reality somewhere inside of ourselves, again, like reason or rationalism does, that the idea that somehow we have this intuitive insight uh, uh, for truth. Mysticism actually, as I've said many times, is just rationalism gone to seed. It is essentially irrationalism, but that seems to be the zeitgeist of our era, 
People don't want to think, they don't want to reason, and they certainly don't want to think, reason, or emote on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of Revelation. Uh, God has revealed himself to us, and essentially what that means is that we get 90 or 95% of the information is accurate that we derive maybe from our senses or from reason, but the other 5% is what shapes and forms and uh, interprets the 95%. And so without the 5% of revelation, which orients us to reality, we can't properly interpret the other 95%, just as Adam and Eve in the garden could observe many true, wonderful things about the garden. They could observe many things about every tree in the garden. They could t- tell uh, many things about the animals that they uh, observed. But the one thing that they couldn't know, apart from Revelation, which organized all the other data, was the command that thou shalt not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you do, you will surely die. And so from that we learn that ultimately we have to start with Scripture, not with experience, not with reason, because Scripture gives us that crucial data so that we don't misinterpret, miscorrelate the data that we learn from, from reason. We learn in the creation that God, and we learn from Proverbs, that God used wisdom. His wisdom is manifest in creation, that wisdom that flows out of his omniscience, the fact that God knows all the knowable. There's nothing that God doesn't know. There's no piece of information that somehow slips away from his omniscience. He knows everything, and as a result of his omniscience, his complete, thorough, exhaustive immediate knowledge of everything, he was able to create the universe as a perfect work of beauty. That takes us back to that core idea that we find in Proverbs, which is the idea of wisdom. And as God created the physical universe, he created and initiated through and by the end of that first week of creation, he He had a set of physical laws that become unbreakable, inviolable. And when we break them, we suffer physical consequences. And we know that when we break certain physical laws, for example, if you jump off a building that's too high, you will hurt something or break something or kill something yourself. But in the spiritual realm, in the social realm, in the emotional realm, in the realm that is unseen and unquantifiable, God also established certain unbreakable, inviolable laws. And when we break those, the consequences may not be as immediately felt, but they are even more damaging and destructive to ourselves than if we jump off of a building or ledge or whatever that is too high learning how to avoid the traps that come with thinking we know it all is learning to submit to the will of God and understanding the wisdom of Scripture. And what Scripture teaches is that we are frequently entrapped and enticed by our own sin nature. I want to start the lesson this morning by turning to a New Testament passage, James chapter 1.
James chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm working on developing a new uh, title slide for the Proverbs study. And as I've titled the study, study Guide for Skillful Living, the, that points out one of the key ideas that we have in Proverbs, and that is how to live your life skillfully, which is the main idea in the word wisdom. And as everybody who studies Proverbs knows, that is one of the main ideas, and so that is usually reflected in the title. But as I have been reading and studying in Proverbs more and more the last uh, month or so, I'm convinced that this might not be the core idea. It is the application we take away from, from Proverbs, but the core idea I find more and more is the idea of choice, the idea of volition. Which path are you going to take in life? Uh, uh, verse after verse after verse contrasts the path of the unrighteous versus the path of the righteous, the way of the uh, the way of wisdom versus the way of the fool, the walk of the uh, wise in contrast to the to the walk of the fool. And so again and again, what is laid out for us in each of these uh, introductory lessons in the first nine chapters, the prologue to the book, we are faced with a choice. And this is true of everything in life. Every day, in hundreds, if not thousands of ways, we make choices. Some are very obvious to us. Some are choices we uh, make automatically because at some time in the past we've already set a course direction and now it's just sort of a habit pattern. But what the Bible presents is the life at the end of our life, our life is what we make it to be because of the choices that we make, not because of the choices other people make. We can't control that. Other people will make many uh, choices that will negatively affect our lives, and some will make choices that positively affect our lives. But the bottom line for your life and my life is how we choose to respond and react to the circumstances, the problems, the adversities, the prosperities of life. And the question for each of us as we go through this study is, what path are we going to take? Are we going to take the path of divine viewpoint, which is expresses in one phrase the idea that God has one way, one path to righteousness, one path of wisdom, or are we going to follow the path of the fool? Are we going to follow the the road laid out by the culture around us? Are we going to be influenced by the sum total of the world's value system, which is what uh, we're going to see here is the pressure of the peer group? And I don't just mean the peer group in terms of uh, a limited social group, but I mean the, the, the peer group here really stands for the world system around us, as the Apostle Paul develops that concept in the New Testament, the world system really represents the zeitgeist, the the culture that surrounds us, the that which is popular, that which is unpopular, that which is politically correct or that which is politically incorrect, that which is socially acceptable or socially unacceptable by the and determined by the values, the mores of the culture around us. And when... Uh, we face life, are we making decisions based upon the priorities and the value system and the standards of Scripture, 
or are we being influenced and are we following the dictates of what is popular in the eyes of the world and the culture around us? And the more that the culture around us departs from its Judeo-Christian heritage, the more conflict there is going to be between the believer and the surrounding environment. And that means that in your surrounding environment, in the corporate world, in the social world, in the political world, you and I are going to face more and more conflicts. There's going to be more and more friction between us and them, between those Christians who are trying to follow divine viewpoint and the world around which promotes human viewpoint, which is just the human representation of Satan's viewpoint. And we have to have discernment and skill to know how to live in the midst of the devil's world in a way that doesn't create trauma, but on the other hand doesn't create compromise. The classic example of that in the Old Testament is Daniel. Daniel and his three friends lived on the basis of wisdom. They lived in the midst of an extremely pagan environment in Babylon, and they were pressured in many ways to conform to that system, and yet they, they stood their ground. Uh, there are four that are picked out by the Holy Spirit as a representation of that and emphasized in the book of Daniel, and I wonder how many of those thousands of young Hebrew adolescents that were taken as captives from Israel back to Babylon, from uh, Judah, under, at the destruction of the, uh, of the kingdom of Judah and the three different attacks that occurred in 605 and 597 and finally in 586 B.C., how many others stood their ground for the truth? We don't know. It could have been a few. It could have been many. But it's a classic example that we can live in a way that is uh, in a way, I, I'm not sure if I like the word comfortable, but we can live in a way that is successful in the midst of a pagan environment without creating conflict and trauma by always setting everything up as some sort of, of extreme battle. It is a battle in one sense because it's spiritual warfare, and so we have decisions to make, and every decision means that we have to bring every thought captive for Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're in, a, in an antagonistic relationship with the world around us constantly uh, butting heads. That isn't the picture that we see in, in Scripture. We see the picture, though, of wisdom in learning to prioritize, learning to make wise decisions, skillful decisions. And that only comes because we've, we've taken in so much of the Word of God that through that, that foundation of knowledge and understanding we have in our soul, God the Holy Spirit enables us to make these wise choices. In James chapter 1, as we look at this, this chapter, since we're there, the passage I'm looking at is in uh, James 1, 12 and following, but there is a relevant passage in just earlier in James and that is James 1, uh, James 1, 5, if I can get there. Got too many markers in my Bible. James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, that verse is one that we've all taken out of context way too many times. doesn't say if you lack knowledge. 
I didn't understand that distinction as a high school kid facing a chemistry and an algebra final on the same day. Didn't do real good on the algebra final, managed to squeak out on the chemistry one, but I prayed claiming this as a promise. But see, promises don't work if you're misunderstanding them and therefore misapplying them. This is not a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer for wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to skillfully apply what you know. But first you have to know it. Now, the context that we see in James 1, and this extends from James 1 uh, 2 down through James 1 uh, 22, is really the prologue to the epistle of James. And the theme of James is how to handle tests and trials in life. There are some ways in which James does mirror and reflect a lot of the ideas from the Proverbs. But it's unlike the Proverbs, it is an integrated whole. And the theme of James is how to handle uh, life wisely and how to face the tests and trials that come in life on the basis of wisdom. And it's boiled down to three principles that are laid out in in uh, James chapter 1, and that is that we're to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the first part of the book deals with uh, being quick to hear, that is, listen to the word. That's the most important thing. And then as a result of that, uh, then we will we are to be slow to speak, uh, not giving in to sins of the tongue, and slow to anger, that is, not giving in to sins of, uh, of emotion. That's in James 1.19. But James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So when we face these tests, tests that are difficult to, to figure out how exactly should we handle this, we should be praying to God for wisdom, for skill of being able to take the word of God, apply it to this situation so we're not compromising the truth of God's word and we're not necessarily causing undue a conflict with the cosmic system because we're always in that conflict. But one of the areas in which we're tested, and that's the theme here, we see this in verse 3 of James 1, my uh, brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials, that's the word, the noun form of the word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now that word that is translated trial and testing is an interesting word because it has a it has two meanings to it. One meaning is the objective external sense of facing a test. Every choice is a test in an objective sense. It's an option. Are you going to choose to follow God and obey his word or are you going to try to handle it on your own? Every decision is a test in which way you're going to go. But there's another meaning to that word that we find in coming up in James 1, 12 through 15. It's the same word, but we're shifting from an objective sense to a subjective sense. And the subjective sense is temptation. It's the attraction to evil, attraction to sin. And they are uh, two sides of the same coin. The objective side, which presents a test, an opportunity to to make a choice, to live life on our own terms or on God's terms. And then the subjective side, which is the internal attraction that comes like a, uh, a magnet to iron. Our sin natures have an attraction to sin. 
And so we have to learn how to uh, control that, what the Apostle Paul calls putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And so we see a pathology here in verses 12 through 15 of the sin nature. I wanted to get the whole context before we just zero in on 14 and 15 for a second. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, endurance is the big key word in, in James. It's the word that means to stay in there. See, most people think that the way I handle temptation or testing is to leave. Uh, but that's not what the Lord did. That's what he's praying on Gethsemane not to do. He's praying that he can endure the test of Golgotha the next day. He's going to go to the cross. And on the cross, the eternal righteous Son of God is going to receive the imputation of our sins. What that meant, we can never, ever understand. That is that he who knew no sin was going to be made sin for us. He wasn't going to be made a sinner He's made sin. He he be, he is becomes judicially unrighteous as he bears the penalty for our sin on the cross, and the pain and anguish of that is the only thing that caused him to cry out in the midst of all of the horrific physical suffering that occurred leading up to the cross, all of the beatings and the flagellations and the. Uh, the use of the Roman flagellum, which was like a cat of nine tails with all kinds of glass and rock and stone and bone uh, woven into the strands as his flesh was literally stripped from his bones and the muscles and organs laid bare, he did not utter a sound. And that was to teach us something that, that you and I would have been reduced to just a quivering mass of, of weeping jello in the first five seconds but he never cried out. What caused him to cry out was when those sins hit him at noon on that day when he was, received the imputation of sin, and that's when he cried out in anguish. And that's what he's anticipating the night before in Gethsemane. And he is praying to God that he will be, that he will be able to endure that testing. See, there's no internal attraction because there was no sin, no sin nature. But there was definitely a test. So he's going through the test, but there's no internal attraction to, to sin uh, from a sin nature. And the test was, would he sin or not, imitating or, re- or rehearsing or reviewing the sin of Adam. So blessed is the man who endures testing. For when he has been approved, and see, this is what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, is he's, he's approved by God as he bears the sin of the world. He does not uh, recoil from it. He does not avoid it. He hangs in there. And that's the idea. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation, no testing taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will, with the testing, make a way to escape. Most people stop there mentally. Uh, Making a way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. God gives us the strength to stay in there to hang in the testing because that's where our witness, our testimony takes place. And when we pass the testing, then we're approved. That word dokimion there, the noun, is a word that is used again in the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and following, dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. 
that we have approval. That which survives is that which is the dachimion, that which has been approved, that which endures or, or that which remains after the endurance. And that's the basis for receiving rewards, the crown of life. This is not a promise of salvation. The crown of life is not eternal life because you receive that by grace. It is a free gift. A gift is something that is given with no conditions. A reward is something that is given on the basis of what one has done. Uh, There is a difference. Rewards are not given on the basis of grace. They are given on the basis of what we do. Uh, It's given on the basis of what is earned. It is given on the basis of what is accomplished. But salvation is given on the basis of what someone else did. So there's a difference between salvation and eternal life, which is given to all who come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But rewards are given to those believers who endure, who press on to spiritual maturity and who walk by the Spirit and grow um, by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. may surprise you, but not all Christians love Christ. A lot of people say they do, but they don't, because love for God is measured in Scripture by one's obedience. Jesus said to his disciples who were already justified, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The flip side's true. If you don't love me, you don't keep my commandments. But you're still saved. You're just disobedient at that point, and you're not loving God. So James goes on to say, let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God. Now, here's he shifted the meaning here. This is why it's so important to understand language. You and I do this all the time in everyday conversation. Somebody uses a word in a sentence or in a paragraph, and they may give it three different meanings in the course of a paragraph, and because that's our native language, we pick up those nuance shifts without consciously thinking about it at all. But when we're reading in a foreign language, we don't always process that correctly. But what's happened here is there's a shift because God obviously uh, provides testing situations for us, but he doesn't internally tempt us or entice us to sin. That word entice is a very important word. Notice it, it shows up in verse 14. Each one is tempted. See, here's James' definition of that second category of testing. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust, there. That's the, the Greek word. It's sometimes translated desire, but it really relates to lust patterns, the motivator of the sin nature. Each one is tempted internally when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So that's what we're talking about here is that subjective attraction to the bait in the trap, because that's the picture that's presented here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, that is, in the sense of attraction to evil. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So you start off with the lust pattern, the option, well, am I going to yield to the lust or not? For those of you who've ever tried to lose weight, that means you're looking at a piece of chocolate cake, which stands for anything that entices your sin nature, and you're either drawn to it or if you have 
set your set your will well or you already had your appetite satiated, it's easy to say no. Uh, but if you look at that and you're hungry and you haven't had lunch and now you're starving and you see that piece of chocolate cake, it's real easy. You feel that that desire. You're drawn to it. It's 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 the bait in the trap of failure, and that's that's the picture here. Is the bait in the trap? That's the idea behind being enticed. So the desire, when we yield to it, then conceives and it gives birth to sin, mental attitude sin, sins of the tongue, or overt sin. But the end game of sin is death, not eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but death in terms of a death-like existence now. See, see, James is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers, which he emphasizes again and again by calling them my brethren. And he's t- telling them, look, if you yield to temptation, what's going to happen is you'll have a death-like existence just like the spiritually dead unbeliever. And so you have to avoid the trap of tem- temptation. This is the same thing that, uh, that we see in the book of Proverbs. So now let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 1. Now I'm going to frustrate some of you. You can pick this up by looking at the slides on the Internet, or I will review them in the future. But for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to just uh, run through this pretty rapidly. We'll look at it in a little more detail uh, later on. But in Proverbs 1, 8 through 9, 18, we have basically ten lessons of the father to the son. This first lesson is a challenge to listen to the father's guidance and to reject the influence of the son's peers. Now, this, the, the peers here, those who are represented as sinners, uh, are the ones who are uh, depicting the, the values and the activities and the desires of the culture around him that has rejected uh, divine viewpoint thinking and rejected the Word of God. Uh, in terms of the organization of Proverbs, this is then followed by a, a parenthesis where wisdom is depicted and personified as one who reject or rebukes the simple. Uh, that word, uh, the simple is the naive person, the person who doesn't understand the realities of living in the world system and is often open to sin. And so he's the open-minded one. He's not, he's not locked down on divine viewpoint. You've ever experienced this. If you're locked down on the Bible and everything in your life is, well, let's start with the Bible. Immediately you run into people in your life who say, well, you need to be a little more open-minded. Well, this is the open-minded person of the world, and the being open-minded is basically the open throat of the grave. And the, if you slide down that open throat, you go to death, and that's the death, not eternal condemnation, but a death-like existence now apart from God. The second lesson is to how the son is to protect himself from the wicked in chapter 2. The third chapter focuses on the third lesson, the promise of the Lord, uh, and the son's responsibility that relates to our responsibility in God's world. The fifth lesson emphasizes the importance of following the path of wisdom. The sixth lesson in chapter 4, verses 10 to 19, a short lesson is instruction on how to run well, seize life, and stay off of the human viewpoint road, which is the road to death. Remember, we'll see these phrases again and again in in uh, the New Testament, the path, the walk, the way, 
Uh, these all relate different ideas, and I think one of the primary ideas in, in, in Proverbs is the verse that there is a way, there is a, a derrick. It's the same word used in Hebrew today for a highway, a road. There's a way that leads to... Uh, there's a way that uh, lead, that, that appears to lead to life, but the end thereof is death. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And that's human viewpoint. There's all kinds of rationalizations and all kinds of empirical evidence that this is the right thing to do, but the end game is death. And that is the, the negatives of human viewpoint. So the warning there is to stay off the human viewpoint road in 410 to 19. And then the seventh lesson is a warning against swerving from the right road in 420 to 27. Then chapter 8 deals with the emptiness of free sex. You have two big issues that attract young people, and that is easy money and easy love. And so these are emphasized again and again as the uh, father teaches his son. Then there's an insight given in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, three patterns you don't want to imitate. Um, then in chapter 9, we have the high cost of a promiscuous or adulterous wife, 620 to 35. And then chapter 10 focuses on the tactics of the promiscuous or adulterous wife. And then there are two closing uh, appendices in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8 focuses on wisdom's appeal. She appeals to those who are naive and simple to listen to wisdom, make it your priority. And then the ninth chapter shows the conflict between the wise and the fools. That's just a summary of the first nine chapters. I'll go over that again. Last week we saw this section begin with, um, in chapter 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And I said this introduces the section, and it emphasizes the fact that, that the graceful ornament and the chains around the neck were used in the ancient world as signs of rewards, uh, signs of, for example, the wreath around the head was a reward for, for winning a race, a victor's wreath in the games. And often they would, uh, a person in a high position would be given a, a chain around their neck, which was a sign of, of their uh, alignment with the gods in Egypt. But it, it, it symbolized protection. And so the idea that comes across in the metaphor here as the, the wreath, the victor's wreath, the chain around the neck is, is a, a symbol of protection and guidance. So listen to your parents. And if you do, then you will, and you follow their divine viewpoint guidance, assuming, we're assuming the parent has divine viewpoint here. Many, many do not, but that's the assumption here because the father who is writing this is writing from the framework of divine viewpoint, that if you follow those principles, then they will protect you and guide you in life. Now, in this first lesson, there's a warning against temptation. And what we see in, in verse 10 is the warning from the Father. The idea here is to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. The Father is going to present to the Son and teach him about the traps, the enticements of the world and of his peers so that when he faces them, he will be forearmed to not fall into their, uh, not fall into their traps. 
in verse 15, he's going to reiterate this. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. It's an intensification of his basic concern. If sinners entice you, do not consent. And so we have a trap, and part of this focus in this section is on the money trap, the idea of easy money, easy wealth, rather than working for it through the process of developing uh, solid uh, character and virtues uh, such as uh, thrift and hard work. Uh, we're going to take the shortcut to money and just steal it from others. This is popular among uh, certain uh, elements of the criminal class, and it's also popular among other portions of the criminal class known as politicians. They just want to take from those who have worked hard, and they often present the rich as those who just came upon easy money. But the wealthy did not come upon easy money, even if it's inherited that money was earned. It was worked for. It is the result of uh, many times years of uh, hard labor, years of education, uh, years of trying, and followed by success. So this is the trap, though, is to think that somehow there's a shortcut to wealth and happiness. That's the enticement in the trap. They're classified as sinners, which is the basic Hebrew word for sin, chata. Uh, and it basically has the idea of someone who misses the mark. There are several different words in Hebrew for sin, and each of them has the idea of someone who falls short of a standard, someone who has uh, missed God's uh, standard and lives short of it. And so these uh, are presented as a group that has rejected the standards of God and are thus... Uh, uh, thus disqualified. This uh, personifies the, uh, the group of worldly, those who are following the standards of the world rather than the standards of God, uh, the worldly peers, the worldly uh, ones in the same age bracket who are influencing uh, the sun. And so in the course of Proverbs, he's going to focus on some of the other attractions that are set before the sun through, through these peers, but here it has to do with the idea of simple uh, of money. Now, he says, if sinners entice you, it's interesting here, one of the things I like about uh, getting back into Hebrew, and especially Hebrew poetry that's also very challenging, is the fact that the writers uh, of the Old Testament especially in the poetry books, uh, Job, the wisdom books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, are, it's written in poetry, in Hebrew poetry, and so they use a lot of, uh, lo of word plays. Now, often we think of the lower class end of the word play, the pun, but this isn't a pun stated to somehow get a, render a chuckle or something out of somebody. It, it's a paranomasia. It's a wordplay designed to bring out a point, to sort of emphasize something. And so there are, uh, in poetry, the words do not have a, the, as, as narrow a precise meaning as they would, for example, in a, in a legal contract or something of that nature. So it's a little more fluid. So you have to... Uh, you really have to pay attention to a lot of different things that are going on inside of the text because the writer will bring things out uh, that aren't always translatable 
to people. And so where at one level you can read your English text and you can gain a lot of uh, insights into uh, life by reading Proverbs, there are little, little nuances and little tweaks and little things that go on in the Hebrew text that also help bring out some, some points. And one of these is the use of this verb here, uh, the sinners who entice. And this is the Hebrew word patah, uh, which means to entice, deceive, or to persuade. The noun form means to be simple or to be naive. In fact, it's used that way in verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. So you see the purpose for Proverbs is to give prudence to the person who's naive or simple or gullible or so open-minded that he's sucking in all of all of the evil and that relates to this, he's responded to the enticements of the world system. So the sinner entices, and by using that word, it, the, it, the writer is causing us to think back to the uh, contrast he's setting up between the wise and the naive, the wise and the simple. And the simple person is the one who gets sucked in to the traps of the, of the sinners. And so there is a, um, and then he says, do not consent, which means do not be willing to go along with them. Set your volition against this ahead of time. It's uh, that word, do not consent, again, appeals uh, to the volition. So the trap has been uh, uh, laid uh, out and identified and exposed in order to warn the son so that he is ready when that comes. And I want you to notice how the father sets this up. He sets it up in a, in a wise way. He, he doesn't try to be too objective or scientific about the thinking of the, uh, of, of the sinners. He's going to set what they say in its most negative light so you realize what's really going on. No, 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 uh, no, no hooligan or thug or gang member who's trying to uh, entice somebody to join their gang is going to say it in this negative a light. They're going to make what they, they're doing, they're going to present it in the most positive light they can and let you focus on all the, all the uh, icing that's on the outside and not the poison that's on the inside. But the father sets it out and expresses their view in this negative way. He says, if they say that's the sinners, this is how they're, this is what they're really saying to you, son. Come with us. Let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let, let, let's go and ambush the innocent people. Let's go take advantage of people who have done nothing wrong. See, they never put it that way. They always try to present the ones with money as they're the bad guys. See what they've taken from us? See what they've stolen from us? See, they've got their large piece of the pie that's how politicians present it. They've got their large piece of the pie, and you can't have yours. So let's tax them to death so you can have your piece of the pie, completely ignoring the fact that the more people work hard and develop the pie gets larger. It's not a finite amount of wealth. So they say here, come lie with us. Let us lie and wait to shed blood. Lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol. They're comparing themselves to doing to people what the grave does to people. Now, of course, no bad guys don't present it that way, but that's indeed what they're, that's really what they're saying. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol and whole, like those who go down to the pit. 
Now, let's look at the language here a little bit. If they say, come with us, they're, they're making an invitation. Come on, come with us. We'll make you rich. This is the easy way to wealth. But what they're really saying is, let us lie in wait. Now, this is a Hebrew word, orev, which means to set a trap, to ambush someone, to ensnare someone. It's also translated plot. So they're conspiring to set up this ambush. And uh, literally, it says, let us ambush for blood. The idea that's said in the, in the text gets the idea across to shed blood. It's the, the, the word dom that's translated blood here is the word that indicates a violent shedding of blood. So that what they're saying is let's set up an ambush. And the, the synonymous parallelism in the next uh, verse says basically the same thing using a synonym for orev, the word safan, uh, and it means to hide in concealment for the innocent without cause. And the word there that's used for the innocent is a word that is used in judicial context to mean someone who is free from guilt. They've done nothing wrong. They are declared innocent and guiltless, and yet they have been misrepresented in the rationalizations of the gang members, the peer group, and we're going to take advantage of them. They've, just, they, they've got all that money. They couldn't get all their money if they did it right, so we're justified in taking some of it uh, from them and for us. Uh, the 12th verse puts it in a different way. It leads to death. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. They're putting themselves in a... Com- there's a comparison between what they do and what Sheol does. Sheol is a, has a sort of a general idea of, of the grave and death. Uh, we're going to swallow them alive. Now, in swallowing them alive, it has that idea of something that comes upon them suddenly like death. I don't think anyone truly, except in a few cases, really expects death to come when it comes. They may think it's coming soon. It may be near, but we're often surprised when it does come. And that's the idea here. This ambush is a surprise and such a surprise that we're just going to take them so quickly and the result is going to be like the, compared to the destruction of death. We're going to take them whole. We're going to take everything and they'll go down to the pit, a metaphor for destruction. We're going to destroy these people's lives by taking what they have. Verse 13 goes on to talk about the enticements. We'll find all kinds of precious possessions. They have all kinds of money. We'll get all kinds of goodies, and then we will fill our houses with spoil from them, and they give their invitation again to him, cast in your lot among us. The word lot here is like the casting of lot, same word, but it's used in a figurative sense here in in cast your future with us. Let us all have one purse. And, of course, in that last line, you see the enticements that we also find of communism. Is we're just going to share it all together. Doesn't that sound wonderful? We're just going to be such a team. Uh, We're going to love each other so much, and we're going to help each other out. We're just going to share equally. It's present using this idealism in order to justify the theft from someone who has worked hard and diligently and saved and accomplished what he has accomplished. And then the father repeats his warning in verse 15 and says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. Notice the imagery here, walk. 
and way and uh, foot and path. It's, this describes the, the course of life, and the Father is warning against that. Don't follow them in their uh, course of life. And when we look at the way in which uh, these words are used, for example, the word way that is used here is the same word that said, that's used over in Proverbs 14, 7, that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. This word has three basic uh, nuances in, a, in its figurative use. One is the course of life, the course of life, which indicates the one's character and context of his life as a whole. So it's 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 a broad sense that we have in the word lifestyle or your way of life. A second sense in which the word is used is with the idea of specific choices and behavior, the the way you conduct your life, the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis. And that, too, can also be communicated by the English word lifestyle or way of life. But the third nuance or emphasis in this word is the consequences that come from that conduct, the consequences that come from that conduct, the inevitable result of making these, making certain kinds of decisions. So which path are you going to be on? Which, which individual decisions of character are you going to make? Which, which overall uh, direction are you going to choose for your life? And that path, of course, leads somewhere, so you're also choosing a destiny. Are you going to choose the end of death or the end of life? Well, of course, we all want to choose the path of life. So when the sinner come, sinners come along to attract us, they have to make it look as if they're the ones who are really offering the path of life. Second uh, Corinthians says that it is Satan who masquerades as the angel of light. And so the world system often masquerades as the real path of life and righteousness. And the only way to have the discernment to remove the mask, the cloak, the disguise of the world system is to know the word of God inside and out and have it part of your soul so that you can uh, properly discern what is going on. So the father repeats, repeats his warning, don't walk in the way with them, keep your foot from their path, And then in verse 16, he explains that. Why should I stay away from them, Dad? Because their feet run to evil. That's where they're attracted. They're not just walking to evil. They're running to evil. They're embracing evil, and they make haste to shed blood. That's the end result, is they're going to not only shed the blood of their victims, but they are going to ironically shed their own blood and destroy themselves. Their path not only leads to the destruction of their victims, but also to their self-destruction. And this is the point he makes in verses 17 and 18. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any any bird. Now this is a uh, uh, an illustration here that is... is uh, uh, often difficult, commentators aren't sure, they go back and forth between a couple of two options. I think it's pretty clear what's going on here. The father is is sort of wrapping things up for the son. And if you look at verse 18, it makes it clear what the imagery of verse 17 is 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 depicting. They lie in wait for their own blood, and they lurk secretly for their own lives. They're ignoring the trap that they're setting for themselves. 
and just like a bird who really doesn't make a connection between the the fowler's uh, net that is spread out on the ground and the fact that when they land upon it, they're captured and lose their life. So the sinners do not make a connection between the choices and the actions of their lives and the self-induced misery and the pain that is brought into their lives and their own self-destruction. They're not very bright. This is what's played out in the conclusion. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain, the person who seeks easy money. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. Now, you can put anybody's name in there, politician or criminal that you like, and it really it really opens up the passage, let me tell you. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. That's the end game. It's the end of death, Proverbs 1.19. So the choice that we'll see again and again in Proverbs is the simple choice. Do you want to take the way of life the way of, or the way of death? Do you want to take the path of righteousness or the path of unrighteousness? Do you want to take the path of wisdom or the path of the fool? Human viewpoint or divine viewpoint? Those two paths are set before us in every single decision. And the path to death is portrayed, camouflaged, and depicted as really the path of life. But it's a trap. And the only way that we have our glasses removed so that we can truly see the trap that is there rather than just the bait is if we know the Word of God. And under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as we study the Word and we learn it, what happens is we develop discernment and understanding, and we're able over the course of time to be able to see things as they really are and to remove the, the, the masks and the camouflage and the masquerade of the world system that is simply a path to self-destruction and a path to death. And so this is the challenge to each of us, the challenge of the father to the son, a challenge that every parent should give to their children. Uh, Many of these lessons you should be teaching to your children in your own way as you go through the course of life is what choices are you going to make? Do you want to make choices that are going to end up with life? Are you going to make choices that end up in death? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to reflect upon Uh, what the lesson is in Proverbs. What choice do we make? Above all, Father, we know there is one choice that is the most important and significant choice that we can make, and that is a choice that determines our ultimate destiny, and that is a choice that is not related to what we discussed so much this morning, but the choice that, that we must make prior to that, and that is the choice of our eternal destiny. Are we going to Uh, seek to gain your favor through our works and our own effort and our own morality? Or are we going to rely upon the work of Christ and rely only upon the work of Christ and what he did on the cross? For the scripture says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him. That is the option. The narrow is the way to life, Jesus said, but broad is the path to destruction. So are we willing to, to put our trust in Christ and Christ alone? That is the most important decision that we will ever make, 
and that determines whether or not we end up in eternal life in heaven or eternal condemnation, eternal death in the lake of fire. And the issue is simply one of choice, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. But beyond that, for those who have believed in Christ, there is the challenge to continue to walk in belief, to continue to trust him, to continue to make those right choices. Many, many times we fail. Many times we are, we are tempted and we succumb to the desires of our sin nature. But there's always grace, there's always forgiveness, and as long as we're still alive, there's always hope. There's always the opportunity to reverse course and to begin to choose the path of life. So, Father, I pray that as we continue our study in Proverbs that God the Holy Spirit would drive these truths home into our lives and we might recognize the the priorities of the decisions we make that we might choose life and not death. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.